0: I have had a secret from my mom. And you know, the really terrifying thing about this secret, a secret that a lot of people have, is that the secret wasn't somebody's hurting me and I need your help. The secret was I'm a bad person.
1: My life is not going so well. I'm in this miserable job as a secretary. I'm living with my boyfriend, who is a fourth-year medical student, and I absolutely adore him. But there are some red flags, like he says he doesn't love me and he's never going to love me.
2: There's about 40 of us in the cell. There's a sign on the wall of the cell that says, if you need help, scream help, which doesn't feel helpful. And there's another sign that says, no pens, no combs, no knives. And then under that written in pen, it says no guns.
3: Hey there, and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. New episodes are released every Friday, and we are in the middle of season number three, which is dedicated to Grit Talks and The Best Of. And today we have three stories from the best of 7x7. 7x7 was a curated virtual storytelling show. It started at the beginning of the pandemic. These three stories today are from the summer of 2020. David Rodriguez, who lives out in California. Tracy Miller-Segara. And Aaron Wolf, they both live in New York. Fantastic storytellers, great stories. I really hope you enjoy them. As always, check the show notes for anything upcoming. And if you listen on Apple, help us out, rate and review this podcast. I know I ask this a lot, but it really helps people find it. And I'd love for people to find it. If you are new to storytelling, join us. Most Sunday nights, we have events. On Friday afternoons, we have something called the Swap Shop. You can come and get feedback on your story. I think we're pretty nice, pretty friendly. And finally, as you listen to the stories today, not only are they entertaining, but perhaps there's something or more than one thing you can take away from it and apply to your own storytelling so that when you are telling stories to whomever you are telling them to, they are engaging and relatable and memorable, presumably things you want them to be. Okay, David, Tracy, and Aaron, let's dive
0: in. So stories, you know, can be really dangerous things. As long as I've had memories since I was about seven, I have had a secret from my mom. And you know, the really terrifying, thing about this secret, a secret that a lot of people have, is that the secret wasn't somebody's hurting me and I need your help. The secret was I'm a bad person. And that's why I never told anyone. But I was just desperate for a narrative. A seven-year-old with things happening to him, he didn't understand, desperate to find a story that made sense. And I found my first narrative At church. And this particular church was called The Oprah Winfrey Show. You know, it was this episode of Oprah where she was sitting with a uh, sex offender and he was telling the story of how he himself was assaulted when he was a child and drawing like a connection to who he'd become as a man. And even though the whole purpose of this b- groundbreaking episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show, where she actually came forward as a survivor herself, was to get people like me to come forward with their stories. Somehow all I heard was that, that sex offender on the stage, that's what your future is. That's your story. Imagine going through life, having your trauma triggered every time you see Oprah Winfrey. All right. She wasn't doing me any fucking favors with that magazine. Let me tell you, there's like no escape, you know, but of course later I like became an adult and I realized, no, you were not destined for that fate. And, you know, you were a victim. And I I gained, I gained kind of like an academic awareness of the fact that it wasn't my fault and all these good things, you know, eventually did tell my secret to some close friends, but you know, I had a choice to make, like, do I tell my mom? Uh, you know, and I just was thinking to my mom, my mom was my hero, you know, she was a single mom, you know, when my parents got divorced, she bought this house she could not afford so that I could stay in the same school district and keep my friends. And I didn't have the heart to tell her I didn't have any friends. She could like move time and earth. She somehow could work 12 hours a day and just like make it to my track meets, like right in the nick of time, you know, she would like found a way to go faster than light speed, you know? And I, and I remember when she dropped me off at college, she said goodbye and I said, can you stay one more day, mom? And she called to see how expensive it was. And I could tell that it was expensive, but she hid that from me. And she stayed one more day. And I remember walking into my dorm room as she sat and stood by her car in the parking lot. And she just stood there watching me until I entered into adulthood. And I just thought, you know, I should carry this one, this secret. I should carry this because she'll blame herself. I just want to carry this one. And as I went through life though, you know, it I had some successes, but like there were things inside of me that weren't whole. Failed relationships, self-destructive behavior, and, and then a divorce. And I just got into this low, low point. You know what that inconvenient truth that you you don't really like step forward until you hit a low. That's, that's bullshit. But unfortunately it isn't bullshit. So there I was at my low, and I got into therapy is not a convenient narrative. I got into therapy after a few sessions. I talked about what had happened to me for the first time. I was sobbing. It was a breakthrough. And then I quit therapy and didn't go back for five years until another low. It takes more than one sometimes. Remember the theme, narratives are dangerous things. When I flew to Hawaii in a desperate attempt to recover from my divorce and called my therapist from a beach and said, I want to start again same person from five years ago that helped me with the breakthrough. And eventually I started, you know, doing some real work and got to the point where I decided to be a whole person. I needed to tell my mom what happened, but not because I thought she could handle it, but just because one more time at almost 40 years old, I needed my mom to be my hero. I needed her to sacrifice one more time for me, for my life. So I drove over to her house. I had this whole thing rehearsed. I was gonna time it for, my stepdad was there so she would have a support person there for her. And I got there and he wasn't there, you know? But I, I, I was like, I had to go through with it. I sat down on the couch and she had that like mom spidey sense, like that superhero spidey sense. She just knew something was up, right? And, and I said, mom, I need to tell you something. And she she gripped my hand so tight. It scared me. Like, like she was saying, like, I know I need to go kill somebody and I need you to get this out so that I can go do it as quickly as possible. Like my mom was an intense woman. <laughs> In that moment, I, I got scared and I thought, what could I say that could match this emotional moment that wouldn't be this horrible truth? I I literally was like, rehearsing, I have terminal cancer, you know, in my mind, like, could I live with that for the rest of my life? Could I just live this life having terminal cancer? And no, obviously that wouldn't work. I have, I have to say it. Like, I have to say it. I have to fill this empty space with this, this horrible truth. You know, and I said, you know, when I was a kid, my babysitter was a bad person. And then she squeezed my hand again, somehow tighter than the first time, just from that one sentence, I understood everything she somehow, with her superhuman powers, managed to fill the next 30 minutes with the 30 years of love that I had denied myself. It was a miracle. And it was a turning point in my life. But then I unfortunately had to come back to the theme, which is that stories are dangerous things. Because I was driving in the car with my mom one day, really feeling like this renewed sense of life that I no longer had this burden that I was carrying. And I told her, mom, you know what? I never really thought about when I was, when you were going through the divorce, when, you know, you were working all those hours, you were also getting your PhD. Like how the fuck did you do that? Mom, you're incredible. And she just took this painful breath and she said, I think about that all the time. And I, and I, I was just mystified. Why, why does she have this pain look on her face? She said, if I hadn't been so selfish as to get my PhD, we wouldn't have had to hire a babysitter. And that just crushed me. And I'm a teacher, you know, and I teach my students lessons all the time, or right? I try to make meaning out of things that seem to not maybe not have meaning or, help them find meaning in their lives you know like a, the other day i was telling a student you know yes sometimes you can swear when you're telling a writing a story but this essay on fortnite isn't a good example of that you know and i was thinking about another lesson about life which is that there's no miracles you know there's no fairy tales there's no soulmates there's no magic you know but there are mothers and mine is a PH fucking D and my personal superhero.
3: Again, that was David Rodriguez out in Northern California. Thanks so much, David, for your story. Next up, Tracy Miller-Segara on Long Island, New York. Enjoy.
1: Growing up, the person I most admired and wanted to be like Was Lori Partridge from the Partridge family. You remember Lori, long dark hair, everybody loved Lori. Unfortunately, the family member I most resembled was her younger brother, Danny. Short, funny looking, wisecracking, nobody really much wanted him hanging around. Well, that was me. I didn't feel like I fit in in my crazy big family, and I certainly didn't feel like I fit in at school. I really didn't have a lot of friends, I was an awkward kid. The first time where I really felt at ease with myself was when I was 14 years old and I got high for the first time, smoked a joint. And when I felt that euphoria going throughout my body, I was in love and all I wanted was more. And I chased that feeling for many, many years. You know, by the time I graduate college, I've gone through the dictionary of drugs from amphetamines to quaaludes and everything in between. Pretty much if you were doing something and you didn't fall down dead next to me, I said, all right, I'll take one of those. Now, the only drug I did not use was heroin, because everybody knows that if you use heroin, you're a drug addict. And I'm not a drug addict. I'm a recreational drug user. Well, It's now a few years after college. It's 1988, and I am living in Manhattan in this dark Manhattan apartment that only gets light from like 1 o'clock to 1.20 every afternoon. Other than that, I'm staring at a brick wall, and my life is not going so well. I'm in this miserable job as a secretary. I'm living with my boyfriend, who is a fourth-year medical student, and I absolutely adore him but there are some red flags that maybe this relationship is not gonna last. Like he says he doesn't love me and he's never going to love me, but I stick around with him. And, you know, so we're going on and, and you know, now that I'm a few years after college and he and I have been getting high together. He, right now, he's actually, for his last semester of medical school, he is away overseas, so I'm in this apartment alone. And over the last year or so, I've started doing this new drug, which I didn't do in college because I couldn't afford it, and it's called cocaine. And unlike all the other drugs that I've been doing, which I could pretty much take or leave, although I took them a lot more often than I left them, cocaine is a whole nother ball game. Cocaine talks to me, cocaine whispers things like. You can do another line or two. That's not going to stop you from going to sleep and being able to go to work the next day. Or you definitely should meet this guy at the bar across the street and start doing his cocaine all night, a Colombian coke dealer, and then invite him back to the apartment where you are currently living alone. Let him in there and do his coke all night, which is what I've been doing. It's now April of 1988. I've been telling this stranger my entire life story, it's 10 o'clock, my sister's wedding is the next day, and I realize I gotta get this guy out of there, I gotta get some sleep, I gotta get my shit together. So I get this man out of my apartment without being raped or killed, so yay me. But now I'm here in my apartment alone, and if any of you have ever done a stimulant like cocaine, you know there is no way I'm gonna go to sleep for hours and hours and hours. So the only thing I can do is to turn on the television. It's the 80s. That's all I have. So I turn on the TV. And at one point, this commercial comes on. Those of you who are a little older will remember. There's a guy, and he's got an egg, and there's a frying pan. And he cracks the egg in the frying pan. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And for years, I have been getting high in front of this commercial with my friends laughing at this commercial. But for some reason this morning, I'm not laughing because it suddenly dawns on me that he's talking about me. And I get scared for the first time in my life. For many years, I've been telling myself, you know, I know I'm going down this wrong path. I'm doing maybe a little bit too much, you know, pot or a little cocaine, you know, maybe it's a little too much, but I'm going to double back. I'm going to start over and I'm going to start doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. But on this morning, for the first time, I get scared. I get scared that I'm not gonna be able to find my way back if I keep doing what I'm doing. So I do something completely out of character for me. I call the number at the end of that commercial. And I get this guy on the phone. And for some reason, I'm just totally honest with him. I tell him, you know, my boyfriend's gonna be leaving me and I'm in this miserable job and my life is a mess. And I remember at one point he tells me, you know, I ask him, I say, what do people do for fun if they don't get high? And I honestly didn't know. I I really didn't. It was an honest question. And so he starts telling me about this um, party, this fellowship that every year on New Year's Eve, they have this party. And one year it got really raucous. and Somebody, a neighbor called the police and somebody at the party was like, oh, shit, the cops are here. What are we going to do? Until somebody else looked at them and goes, what do you mean, what are we going to do? Flush the cookies down the toilet? And when he told me that, I laughed, you know, and it was the first time I laughed like that in a long time. And he convinced me to go to this meeting, and I knew nothing about meetings or recovery. And even though I hadn't slept, I'm like, all right, I'll go to the meeting. But my next problem is, what am I going to wear to this meeting? Because there's going to be drug addicts at this meeting. And I'm not a drug addict, but I want to fit in, you know. So I wear this ratty t-shirt, jeans. You know, I haven't slept all night, so I figure that'll be good. And I get to this meeting, and I walk in, and I don't know what anybody says, but I sit down, and something comes over me just listening to these people. And I feel something that I haven't felt in, I don't know, maybe ever, which is that I feel safe. I feel like, I don't know why or how, but I feel like these people can help me. So I keep going to these meetings. And a few months later, they invite me to go to this retreat. It's for recovering people, and it's upstate New York and Pauline, New York. And there's like these dorms, and there's uh, this lake, and there's terrible food, meetings around the clock. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And I love it. And at one point during the weekend, one of my new friends, Tony, says, come on, Tracy, let's go paddle boating on the lake." So we go paddle boating on the lake and it's a beautiful sunny day. And as we're paddling around the lake, I suddenly look up at the sky and I say, wow, you know, this is beautiful the way it is. Like, I don't need to get high to enjoy this. And Tony looks at me and he's like, uh, yeah, duh. But to me, it's a revelation. And nine years later, I get married in front of that same lake. And I get married there because I eventually meet my husband at another one of these retreats. At this point, he's still in the Bronx somewhere smoking crack, but eventually he finds his way back in the rooms. We meet. And so I want to get married there because that's where we met, but also because I'm starting this new chapter in my life and I want to start it in a place where I feel like I fit into the world for the first time.
3: Thank you, Tracy, for your story. Really appreciate it. Next up, our third of three storytellers, Aaron Wolf. Aaron is based in New York City. Enjoy.
2: So, the arresting officer doesn't even look up from his paperwork, right? And he says, "Uh, Mr. Wolf, you're Puerto Rican, right? And I say, No. And he looks up and he kind of looks me up and down real slow. And he goes, Yeah, I'm just going to put down Puerto Rican for you. And, like, on one hand, like, I'm a 20-something-year-old white kid from suburban Teaneck, New Jersey. Like, I have never been the subject of, like, racial injustice. And, like, I am living for it. Like, I have, like, lived on, like, Wu-Tang Clan and, like, Bob Marley. And I am, like, ready to, like, experience, like, being anything other than just, like, another white kid from suburban Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, But on the other hand, I'm pretty sure my grandparents didn't survive the Holocaust just so that I wouldn't, like, get arrested for smoking joint outside of a school in, in midtown Manhattan and not have it go on my permanent record that I'm a Jew, right? So I'm about to give this guy like a what for and tell him what he's got wrong. And then he says, Mr. Wolf, give me your shoelaces and your belt. And I say, why? And he says, so you don't choke nobody out. And again, I'm sort of like thrilled that he sees me that way, but also kind of horrified that he sees me that way. I didn't know that was a possibility. Um, and before I can say anything else, he sort of Points me towards a corridor, and I walk down the corridor, and I'm told to chain myself to a, a link of chain with four other guys, and I'm put into the back of a police wagon, and the police wagon has two benches, and there's um, a space in the middle. There's one chain per bench, and two chains of guys squeeze in between the two benches, and we're driving from Midtown Manhattan down to uh, Central Booking in Lower Manhattan, affectionately known as the Tombs because it's a lovely place to spend an afternoon, I guess. And it's a really bouncy ride. And every time we hit a bounce or like make a right turn, the guys that are standing fall on the guys that are sitting on the bench. I'm sitting on the bench and the guys that are standing are falling on me. And this one guy is falling on me over and over again. And every time he falls on me, he sort of braces himself by putting his hand on my leg. And every time he does it, his hand stays a little bit longer on my leg. Now, up to this point, everything I know about jail, I have learned from the gritty and shockingly explicit HBO television show, Oz. And so like, I know that it starts with like a hand on your leg and the next thing you know, you're accidentally a member of the Aryan nation and I don't want that to happen to me. And so like, I will do anything to get this guy to not have his hand on my leg. And so I say, um, you know, Hey, can you get your hand off my leg? And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm like, oh, that was easy. And then we hit another bump, and boom, his hand's back on my leg. And now it's not budging. And I start to get really worried. And like, I have no idea like what I'm supposed to do. Like I have no idea how to get out of this moment. And... Then I suddenly remember, right? Like the cop that arrested me, like he didn't know anything about me. Like he didn't know who I was just by looking at me. Like none of these guys in this police wagon know that like I cried at Jason Klempner's bar mitzvah because the boys were acting wild. Like they know nothing about me, right? So like I muster up like every ounce of my like high school drama club theater chops. And I look this guy in the eyes and I say, get the fuck off my leg. And... He sort of rocks back on his heels. Now, before I go forward, I should say that character is a character I learned from the Teaneck High School production of South Pacific. Get the fuck off my leg is there is nothing like a dame. It's the same guy, right? But it totally, totally works. And he gets this like sad look on his face and he says, I am so sorry. And we hit another bump and he doesn't touch me. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm cool. And we get to central booking, to the tombs, and now we're put into a cell with another group of men. There's about 40 of us in the cell. There's a sign on the wall of the cell that says, if you need help, scream help, which doesn't feel helpful to me. And there's another sign that says, no pens, no combs, no knives. And then under that, written in pen, it says no guns which to me, I feel like the guy broke the first rule by writing the most obvious rule on this sign. And I'm starting to get really worried and I'm looking around the room and everybody seems super calm, which doesn't feel good to me at all. And all I know is that like half of these men have seen me stand up to the police wagon bully, right? If I can figure out who the other bully is gonna be in this group, like I'm gonna be okay. So I start scoping everybody out. And all around me, people start to relax and they start to go to sleep but I'm not going to sleep until I figure out who the next alpha is in this room. Right. And I spot him and he's a guy that I call the Don and I call him the Don because he looks like he either owns a fleet of limousines or he can sell you a spine like right now. And he's wearing like a three piece suit and he's got like gold chains on and like braces. I don't have, I don't have a belt or shoelaces on. This guy has necklaces and like a full Armani outfit. And he's pacing back and forth in front of the bars of the cell. And I'm just watching him. And as long as he's awake, I'm going to be awake. And about three hours later, he stops. And he grabs the bars and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. He starts screaming, officer, 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 officer. Officer!" And in my head, I'm like, officer, 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 officer. Like I'm freaking out and he's going, officer, officer. And finally he hasn't yelled help, so no one's come. But finally he says it loud enough that a corrections officer comes over and he says, what's the problem? And the guy says, I'm sick. And the officer says, what's the matter with you? You got a, you got a cold? And the guy says, no. And he says, you got a stomachache?" And the guy says, no. And the officer says, you got detox? And the guy says, yeah. And the officer says, heroin? And the Don says, yeah. And then the officer says, then fuck you. And he walks away. And the Don kind of crumbles. He's about two feet tall, right? And he sits down on the bench. And now everybody in the, in the cell is chatting. All of a sudden everybody's come to life because everybody simultaneously has figured out that the scariest people in this place are on the other side of the bars. And they're all talking and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And this, I feel this tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's the, it's the uh, police wagon bully. And he says, Hey man, um, I don't know if you know, but like, uh, do you know how long we're going to be in here? Because like, I, um, I can't spend the whole weekend in here. I got arrested for, for, for not having my, my, um, my license in the car and like, are, am I going to be in here for a long time? Do you know if I'm going to be in for a long time? And before I can answer, the guy next to him says, oh man, you were arrested for being, driving while being black. And I look at the bully from the police wagon. I really look at him, right? For the first time. And he's about 50 years old, African-American man. He looks tired and scared, as scared as I feel. And I ought to say so much, right? I ought to say, oh my God, I am so sorry, man. I am so sorry for how I treated you. I am so, so sorry. I ought to say that. I don't. I just say, no, I don't know. And I kind of embarrassed and full of shame walk to the end of the bench and sit back down. Now, I heard uh, a while ago that the word penitentiary comes from the word penitence, meaning like you're supposed to sit there and feel sorry for what you have done. I wasn't in a penitentiary. I was in central booking for 24 hours. I was released 24 hours later with all counts dismissal pending one-year probation. I don't know what the other guy got. I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he likes jogging or bird washing or if he's just trying not to get dead. What I do know is that for making him scared of me because I was too dumb to know that I was scared of his skin color, sorry doesn't even come close to cutting it.
3: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our storytellers, David, Tracy, and Aaron. Thanks so much for your stories. Check the show notes for anything upcoming and help us out if you listen on Apple. Please rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it, and I really want people to find it. Thanks very much for that. That is all for episode number 67. Wait for it. Boom.